Thanks uh, to all of you for giving me this opportunity to talk to you about money, free and unfree. I apologize if my voice isn't everything it ought to be. I've, I'm recovering from a cold, and uh, so uh, uh, I'll <clears throat> I hope I'll not have to clear my throat too often. Uh, one of the reasons I was glad to come to Cato and leave the academy was so that I could mostly lecture to people who wanted to hear what I <laughs> was anxious to say. Uh, this is a good example of the sort of thing I looked forward to. I, I, hope, that, uh, I hope that it uh, uh, is as enjoyable for you to hear as it is for me to be lecturing to you. This is a big topic, of course, and I don't have that much time, so allow me to uh, proceed by talking about how monetary institutions develop when government isn't interfering with their development. And uh, the gist of my argument here will be that they develop pretty darn well and that there are self-ordering aspects of a freely developed monetary system that are sadly not appreciated by the vast majority of monetary economists, let alone monetary policy makers. Now, we all know that if you don't have money, you've got to rely on barter. Money is a generally accepted medium of exchange that overcomes the problem of the lack of a double coincidence of wants, as William Stanley Jevons, the great Victorian economist, termed it, uh, that barter otherwise uh, uh, gives rise to. So by having a common medium of exchange that everyone is willing to trade for, why, of course, that makes it possible for people relatively easily to trade what they start with for what they ultimately want by trading first for the medium that everyone is willing to accept. Now, it's tempting to assume that the existence of a common medium of exchange, of something that everyone agrees to treat as a medium of exchange, requires some kind of a deliberate act, perhaps the order of a dictator, benevolent or otherwise, or at least some kind of deliberate consensus, perhaps a vote or something like that. Now, of course, it's conceivable that uh, money develops that way on occasion, but we owe it to the great Austrian economist Karl Menger uh, that uh, our understanding that uh, this is absolutely unnecessary, that there is, after all, a mechanism by which money, that is a generally accepted exchange medium, can develop in society quite spontaneously without any individual person actually attempting to create money as such. Menger's theory is uh, a very subtle theory. The best way I know to describe how it works is by referring to something rather uh, seemingly unrelated, which is a Polya-Urn experiment. George Polya was a statistician, and in, he did many statistical experiments that involved urns and drawings of colored beads and so on. I used to do such an experiment in my money and banking classes using jelly beans until I found that people were eating the beans, which is a health <laughs> hazard. Uh, and the way, <clears throat> the way this works, though, is something I can also just explain. Suppose that in this room I uh, had a, an urn, an opaque urn, that at first only had, let's say, 10 different beads in, in it, that is, beads of different colors. 
And then I also had a large bag of beads of all these colors as well. And I passed the urn around the room and asked everybody to draw from it with replacement. That is, you draw, you look at the color, you put that back and another bean from the bag of the same color. And you do this in a way that no one can see what you're doing. This is blind drawings with double replacement. And let's say each of you draws three or four times, so we end up with an urn that's quite full of beans. What do you suppose will happen if I then just dump that urn right here on the floor with its new contents? What would you see? That? Anyway. A lot of beans of one color? That's right. You see one color dominant. That's quite interesting because no one picked that color and yet everyone picked that color. Right? Right? Okay. What's the connection with money? Well, imagine people are in a marketplace and there's only barter at first. But everybody's thinking, well, you know, it's hard for me to trade the good I've got for what I really want. Maybe there's some goods that are a little easier for me to trade, uh, 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 that I can trade for, that are also a little easier for me to trade for what I want. So people individually experiment. They go into the market, they look around and say, I think I see that that good's a little bit more popular than the one I've got. If I can trade for that good, and maybe I can trade it for what I want. And everyone's doing these individual experiments. But of course, the more people who choose any particular good, let's say they choose chocolate, the more saleable that makes chocolate, the more tradable. And that means that if enough people experiment and choose the same goods, the more they do so, the more tempting it will be for others to choose the same goods as they do. Does that make sense? So you get the same kind of cumulative process a very similar one anyway, that results in one color bean, jelly uh, bean uh, dominating in the urn, uh, can lead to one good being obviously the, the dominant good in the contest to be a medium of exchange. Does that make sense? All right, and that's essentially Menger's theory. Now, Menger's uh, uh, point is that we didn't need government to create a basic medium of exchange. It can happen quite spontaneously and Menger goes on to say that presumably that is how it happened more often than not. Now, almost all of the history of money in this early, in, in this early stage was actually prehistorical, so we don't see it happening. It's too far back in time. Most of the societies we know have, have monies when we first encountered them. But we do have some relatively recent experience to draw on that illustrates Menger's theory, and that experience comes from POW camps most well-known instances being those of the camps in which Allied prisoners were kept during World War II, they'd get these Red Cross parcels with all these goodies in them. Some people like some of the goodies more than others. Some people have the opposite tastes, right? Some prisoners smoke but don't shave. Some shave but don't smoke, so on. And as a result, there are opportunities for mutually beneficial exchange but then there's also the problem of a lack of double coincidence of wants that precludes many of the potentially desirable exchanges from occurring directly. Okay, in other words, there's need for money. Well, we know that prisoners solve this problem by evolving exchange, uh, media of exchange, generally accepted media of exchange. Nobody ordered it. Some prisoners have written about how this happened quite spontaneously most often with cigarettes ending up being chosen. But it's not as if cigarettes were the only potential candidate to serve that purpose. I'm sorry. You're echoing. You've got to lower it. Lower this? I don't have a mic on me, so. Oh, OK. That's better. Yeah. I'm not sure why that's happening. Um, uh, so um, 
any, any number of goods could have served the purpose. Chewing gum would have worked just as well. And uh, in any event, the problem was solved. The fact that there are many goods in almost any conceivable setting that might serve as a generally acceptable medium of exchange means that, in fact, uh, it makes it unsurprising that, in fact, many different goods have served this purpose. Here are some examples of what anthropologists used to call primitive monies. I don't know what the politically correct alternative term is, so I have to use that one. But um, uh, some of these were quite prominent monies. So the cowrie shells, in particular, were used in many different societies around the Indian Ocean. <clears throat> now, what Menger's theory doesn't suggest, and it's very important that we not exaggerate or misunderstand its implications, Menger's theory doesn't suggest that whatever good evolves as money in a particular community will be the best conceivable money that community could have had. There's a role for accident, for haphazard choice in this process that Menger's theory describes. So it doesn't imply that the marketplace will choose the most efficient, convenient, desirable, stable, whatever medium of exchange. I'd like to, however, suggest an amendment to Menger's theory that can help us appreciate how there is, after all, a, a long-term tendency for inferior monies to be uh, 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 eliminated and superior ones to prevail. And uh, to illustrate that, I'd like you to imagine two economies that are first, at first are quite isolated from each other. They don't trade at all. Maybe the mic isn't here. Is that a Magic. Um, so uh, imagine these isolated economies are in every way similar at the time when they develop their exchange media and assume that by a Mengarian process each one develops a different exchange media, some different commodity becomes money. Well, if one of those commodities is in fact more efficient than the other, then other things equal, that economy should grow faster or bigger than the economy with the less efficient money. Let's assume that happens. And let's also assume that eventually these economies come in contact with one another, more likely because explorers from the wealthier economy visit the less wealthy one. And now you have, once again, opportunities for exchange with barter being inefficient between the two economies with separate monies. Well, the Mengarian process now starts one more time, except in this case, one horse, as it were, is already well past the others and close, and has uh, and therefore become the obvious choice to be the medium of exchange for both countries. So in this way, through this kind of interaction between formerly isolated economies, superior monies might tend to weed out or replace inferior ones. Well, that's just a theory, of course. But um, we do know, in fact, that precious metals, gold and silver, became by far and away the most important commodity exchange media in ancient, by ancient times. Now, they do have one obvious disadvantage. That disadvantage, which can be seen most readily if you compare the precious metals to, say, cowrie shells, is that they don't come in natural prepackaged little units, right? Rather, they come in the form of, of uh, uh, nuggets or uh, gold dust, that sort of thing. And so, in order to make the precious metals convenient, you, oh, you want to buy me now? Oh, nobody told me. 
<laughs> Did you all miss all of that? No. <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> you mentioned the microphone. Well, that's a shame. No, if he was from the NSA, I would have been recorded quite thoroughly. <laughs> Before I got here. All right, how's that? Okay, so there's a need for the sake of making the precious metals convenient exchange media, there's a need to be able to, to package them, as it were, into nice uh, uniform units that represent definite weights and qualities of the metals in question. There's a, a widespread myth that one can find repeated by ancient authorities like Herodotus that the first coins were invented by some ancient tyrant or prince like Gyges or uh, Phaedon or I think it's Croesus who's depicted here. It didn't really matter much to me. I just wanted an excuse to introduce some nudity into my talk. Um, but, um, but in fact, in fact, the very first coins or, uh, or things resembling coins that we know about were the electrum coins uh, of uh, Lydia in Asia Minor. Electrum was a naturally occurring uh, alloy of, of gold and silver. And as far as anyone can tell, the markings on these coins, which really are what signify them as a, a, a prototype coins, the fact that they have specialized markings at all, those markings apparently don't belong to any known rulers or princes and so on. So as far as anybody can tell, they, they were private markings, perhaps markings of religious authorities, but not of, of actual rulers or tyrants. Uh, so the origins of coinage appear to be private. At least we, we can't, uh, uh, we don't have evidence suggesting the contrary. We do know, of course, that ancient governments were very quick to monopolize coinage very quick to monopolize coinage and to impose extremely harsh penalties, often capital punishment, on anyone who would encroach on their monopolies of coinage. The question is, why? Well, <clears throat> uh, the most common answer in textbooks, and I'm afraid even Menger thought this was a, the right answer, was that you needed to have governments monopolize coinage in order to assure the uniformity and reliability of the coins and to prevent abuse of coinage. But of course, we also know that governments themselves, ancient ones, but also later governments, were notorious abusers of their coinage monopoly privileges. Here is what happened to the silver content of the Roman denarius over the course of, of uh, about 200 years. Uh, it went from being an almost pure silver coin to being a coin with practically no silver at all in it, just copper or brass. Now, <clears throat> given the long history of abuse of coinage by governments. One has to wonder how economists and others manage to subscribe to the view that only governments can be trusted with coinage. Many uh, refer to Gresham's Law as providing a rationale for the monopolization of coinage. The references to Thomas Gresham, who was an advisor to Queen Elizabeth, he never quite expressed the law in its more popular form bad money drives good money out of circulation, but he did advise 
Queen Elizabeth that thanks to the debasements of her father and also Edward VII, uh, all the good money had been driven out of England. But that, of course, that qualification is very important. It, it is exactly when governments control coinage and abuse it that there is a tendency for good coins to be driven out by bad coins. Specifically, when governments issue debased coins and insist, as is in their interest to do, that people accept those coins at their face value rather than place any discount on them or discriminate against them, the first thing that this does is to give effect to the unintended consequence that no one will, who has better coins will use those anymore. They'll melt them, melt them and sell the metals in the black market or overseas so as to get better value for them than they would get if they merely used them at their face value when they can use the shoddy coins for that purpose. But what about private coinage? Governments seldom have allowed it, but sometimes they have. So we actually have empirical evidence of what happens when you allow private enterprise to produce coins. We have some from the United States. During the Appalachian gold rush, there was no federal mint anywhere except in Pennsylvania. So, as a consequence, the gold miners had a demand for coinage facilities which was fulfilled by private entrepreneurs, particularly and most famously by Beckler's Mint. This is in North Carolina. Well, those coins produced by Beckler's Mint and others produced by some other mints at the time that are well, well less known were of very good quality. There may have been some mints producing shoddier coins, but if there were, they didn't last very long because it wasn't profitable. That is, you couldn't do good business attracting miners, getting them to bring your, their gold to you as a mint if, there was, if what you gave them in return were coins that were not up to the standard, or if not a little bit better, of the federal mint in Pennsylvania. Later, in California, during the gold rush, another private coinage industry sprung up, and once again, the mints that stayed in business, and there were several of them, produced very high-quality coins, again, to a standard at least as good as, and in many cases better than that, of the federal mint in uh, mints that were then in both Philadelphia and uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. By then there was a mint in Charlotte, but none in California. It was precisely because of the shoddy quality of government-produced coins that we got our first forms of bank-supplied money. Uh, and most importantly, we got our first circulating banknotes. The originals, uh, the first ones of these, at least that we know much about, were actually another private innovation. They were an, in an innovation of the goldsmith bankers of London during the middle of the 17th century. Later, of course, some central banks or early monopoly banks of England, like the Bank of Sweden and the Bank of uh, England, uh, monopoly banks of issue, like the Bank of Sweden and Bank of England would issue notes. But despite what some of their histories say, the goldsmiths did it first. Their notes were originally known as running cash notes. The idea was simple. Instead of merchants having to deal with coins that were often very shoddy and having to weigh them and figure out how much gold or silver they really contained before affecting an exchange, they could deliver these coins to a bank and get an exchange or running cash note or other evidence of their deposit 
which could itself testify to their ownership of a definite quantity of gold and serve as a form of money more reliable than the coins themselves. And that's exactly how bank money took off. Now, there are some people, I won't mention any names, <clears throat> who think, that was supposed to generate a laugh, this is Murray, <laughs> this is Murray Rothbard, in case you don't know. There, there are some people, uh, and Rothbard is one of the most well-known, but, but uh, many others as well, who believe that, this, that banking, at least in its origins, if not to this day, involves fraud because bankers were supposed to store the precious metals they received from the public instead of using them as a basis for lending, which is in fact what bankers, including the goldsmith bankers, did. But there's not much truth to that. In fact, the laws under which the goldsmith banks operate, store technical problems, and, uh, uh, and in fact laws uh, before them, dating back to uh, uh, very ancient times, had a very simple rule behind them to decide what bankers or other persons dealing with coin were uh, entitled or not entitled to do with that coin. The rule was very simple. If you were a money changer or a banker or whatever, and someone brought you coins in a sealed bag, the understanding was that the coins were being deposited for storage. That is, a literal deposit or warehousing of the coins was what was expected, and the banker had no right to treat the coins as his own property and lend them or whatever. But if the coins were brought loose, the presumption was that they were being lent to the banker, that the banker, well, actually, in effect, uh, given, sold to the banker in exchange for an IOU. It was a debt contract. The coins, the actual coins, never had to be returned, and that's the sense in which the banker became the owner of the coins, but he was, as a debtor, responsible for returning the equivalent when the debt came due, which could be whenever the depositor wanted it, wanted the money back. This was a very well-understood principle. So if you hear this fraud stuff, forget about it. Uh, now, Adam Smith wrote very eloquently about the advantages that a banking system could uh, produce, that bank money in particular could produce to a society, because it released a, a, a large part of savings for productive use that might otherwise have been locked up in, in balances of actual gold or, spe or uh, some other kind of specie. And he used a colorful metaphor that may seem a little bit obscure, to describe this when he wrote the judicious operations of banking by providing, if I may be allowed so violent a metaphor, a sort of wagon way through the air, enabled the country to convert, as it were, a great part of its highways into good pasture fields and thereby to increase very considerably the annual produce of its land and labor. Oops, I don't know what that is. Um, so <clears throat> what did this mean? Well, suppose that just to make life, the, the story simple, suppose there's only one good in society. Call it corn, which is, of course, wheat, if you're Adam Smith. Um, and let's suppose there's also money, even though it wouldn't make sense to have money if there's only one good, right? But let's just suppose that for some reason you, you need money to, to exchange. Well, let me step back. Let's, let's put, put money aside for a minute. Suppose the only good is corn. Now, You've got a certain amount of acreage. If you could plant every acre, you'd get the most corn and the most utility for society. But there's a problem. 
If you plant every acre, you can't harvest the corn because you need a roadway to get to the corn to harvest it. So you have to sacrifice some of the arable land in order to be able to get the corn and thereby get it to where it's most needed. All right. With goods in general, it would be nice if you could use all your labor and land and raw materials just to produce the desirable, ultimately desirable goods and not have to devote any of that, uh, that, uh, those inputs to producing the medium of exchange. But we know that if you don't devote some input into the medium of exchange, the goods can't end up where they're most useful. So we sacrifice some of our land, labor, and capital to make the medium of exchange, say, gold coins or silver coins. But what if we didn't have to do that? What if we could put all that land, labor, and capital to use instead of it going into the gold coins as if we could harvest corn from every acre we've got? Well, you can with banks and bank money. That is, to a large extent, you can. Because the banks, by issuing their IOUs and then backing their IOUs for precious metal with only a small fraction of that precious metal, essentially are reducing the opportunity cost involved in having a medium of exchange and promoting economic growth by virtue of doing so. And that's what the Scottish banks in particular, where Adam Smith lived, did. They saved on the actual resources that went into producing precious metals by providing convenient and reliable substitutes. The Scottish system, by no coincidence, was the most efficient banking system at doing this, with competing banks of issue supplying their money, which was valued, which was preferred to gold and silver coin itself by the public, widely preferred. There's a quote somewhere that says, the first thing a Scotsman did if he got hold of a gold guinea was to quickly get it to a bank and exchange it for a much nicer Scottish banknote. And as a result of this, Scotland's economic growth was remarkable during the heyday of its free banking era. In fact, Scotland had been a very poor country at the beginning of the 18th century, much poorer than England, perhaps a third of England's per capita GDP. By the end of that century, well, by the middle of the 19th century, it had caught up. And many economic historians attribute this catching up to the efficiency of the Scottish banking system. In fact, before 1765, when they were outlawed, Scottish banks, uh, when small notes were outlawed, Scottish banks could issue notes as small as a penny. And that, to that extent, not even small change had to consist of metal. Now, it's true that there's a risk that comes with all of this, as you all well know. And Adam Smith was aware of it. He wrote, the commerce and industry of the country, however, it must be acknowledged, though they may be somewhat augmented, cannot be altogether so secure as when they are thus, as it were, suspended upon the Dedalian wings of paper money as when they travel about on the solid ground of gold and silver. In other words, when you have fractional reserve banking, you have a risk of runs and failures and even collapse of the system. Yet, the Scottish system that was so successful and so crisis-free operated typically after 1800 on reserves, specie reserves of less than 2% of the Scottish bank's liabilities. Before 1765, they could uh, address uh, bank runs or the threat thereof, and they did address them, sort of, 
using a clause that uh, deserves more attention is the so-called option clause, which we can see if we take a closer look at that note I illustrated before, that allows the bank the option of suspending payment of gold and silver subject to a penalty of 5% interest rates during the time of the suspension. Now, they never used this clause to prevent cust ordinary customers from getting their gold. They had it because some banks, when they were new, would get raided by established rival banks and they wanted to discourage those raids. And, uh, uh, but anyway, you can show that these contracts were what economists today call incentive compatible. That is, uh, it wasn't in the interest of a badly run bank to suspend and invoke the option clause because it would then just make itself that much more insolvent by having to pay out interest that it couldn't afford to pay. It was better for such a bank to wind down. But if you were a solvent bank and people were running on you just because they were panicking and ill-informed, you invoked the clause. That means that these clauses could, could work very well to stop bank runs because the moment a bank invoked the clause, the people who would have run on it knew not only that they couldn't get their gold, but that there was no reason for them to worry about getting their gold. Very neat. Too bad they outlawed them in 1765. The, uh, the system worked very well anyway because people trusted it. Now, uh, there is, in the, in the system, like the Scottish system, there is an important source of discipline that keeps any of these banks, even if they have an option clause, from overissuing. And this has to be understood. This is a very important part of the self-regulating nature of a freely developed monetary system. And that system operates through the regular exchange of liabilities among the competing banks, including the exchange of paper currency something that doesn't happen when you have a monopoly, and I'll get to that shortly. Exchange could take place at local branches of banks. The Scottish system, having been free, was a branch banking system with widespread branches throughout the country. Or it could take place at central exchanges like the one illustrated here. Every day, eventually, all the clerk, clerks would receive items from all the banks. These are the notes and checks that the banks had gathered through the course of the business day from rival banks, and they would uh, settle them. They would figure out which banks owed how much to which other banks, and then the net settlement dues would have to be transferred in, in specie or in some other reserve medium. What this regular note exchange among competing banks of issue essentially added up to was a sort of chain gang discipline for the Scottish banks. I think you've all seen chain gangs and you know how they work. The prisoners don't have to be uh, uh, chained to any immovable object. They can just be chained to each other. And that prevents them from escaping because in order to escape, all the prisoners would have to coordinate and run together at exactly the right pace Otherwise, if one isn't running at exactly the same pace, he trips all the others up. In fact, it's virtually impossible for any large number of prisoners, say three or four, to, to, to move much at all. They can just hobble about, as any of you know who's ever tried a three-legged race. And so the result of this is that the banks are kept very much in check by one another. It's competition among the currency-issuing banks that keeps the supply of currency from being overissued. Now, that doesn't mean that certain banks might not try, but they will pay a heavy price if they do. There was only one, but one very dramatic instance, uh, illustration of this in Scottish banking history. In 1772, a then still very new bank collapsed famously, the Air Bank, 
uh, AYR. Uh, and uh, it, it, uh, the official name was Douglas Heron and Company, but the nickname was the Air Bank because that's where it was located. This bank was set up by people who thought, we're going to become the biggest bank in the country and we're going to do it right now. And so they, they made loans on very generous terms. They increased the number of their items outstanding, their liabilities, notes, otherwise. And sure enough, they lost reserves, just as you would expect, given the way daily settlement was taking place. Except, instead of facing the ultimate implications of what was happening, the air tried to stave off collapse by borrowing in London and covering its losses and borrowing and covering and borrowing until, of course, it couldn't do it anymore and it finally collapsed in a spectacular fashion. Most of the big established Scottish banks were standing by watching all this happening and saying, well, this is going to be interesting. Some smaller ones went down when the air bank went down, unfortunately. But the bottom line is that the clearing system did exactly what you wanted it to do, what, it, what theory says it would do, would discipline a bank that didn't behave. That system has another important macroeconomic implication, which, um, which I illustrate in this chart. <clears throat> do we have a little pointer here or not? I don't think so. No, okay, I'll just point to it. Um, Let's suppose that this vertical line is the reserves of specie available to the Scottish banks, and let's assume it's fixed in the short run. The demand for reserves will be determined by those daily clearings. Now, the more activity, that is, the more money that's being spent, the, more pay, the greater the volume of payments, that's M times V for money and velocity, times velocity. All right, the demand for reserves is zero if no one's spending any money, that's obvious. But it rises as they're spending money because the volume of, of, settle, of, of items to be settled at the clearinghouse is going up. And as that volume goes up, the amount of reserves the banks collectively need for settlement is going to go up too, though less than proportionately because of economies of scale. So you get an upward curve, curving schedule of reserve demand. Well, when that schedule crosses the supply schedule, that's your equilibrium level of spending. So what this means is that in this, a free banking system like Scotland's, there's a tendency for the volume of spending to be automatically stabilized. If the spending goes up too much, reserve demand is less than supply, and banks will contract. They'll reduce M to get the spending back down. The opposite happens if you're down here, below the equilibrium point. Remember this when I show you what happens under central banking systems where you don't have this mechanism at work. Now, everything I've said seems very old-fashioned, talking about bank notes, etc. But in fact, any form of bank money has this self-regulating mechanism behind it, whether it's checkable deposits or uh, digital money of other kinds. So the principles are the same. So long as the issuers are competing with one another, so long as you have no monopoly. What happens, though, if you have a monopoly? What happens, for example, if you create something like the Bank of England, established in 1694, and give it, if not a complete monopoly of currency, such outstanding privileges regarding the issuance of currency as add up to a practical monopoly? The Bank of England's privileges would actually be increased over time, but from the very beginning, it practically exercised a monopoly of currency within a large radius of London by statutory uh, grant. Now, before you 
uh, imagine otherwise. I want to stress, the founders of the Bank of England gave no thought to stabilizing or improving England's monetary system. That was the last thing from their mind. The Bank of England Act was part of what's called a tonnage act. That is, an act to collect duties, revenue for the government. And the Bank of England was established expressly for the purpose of augmenting the government's revenue. The king at the time wanted to fight a war with France and didn't have any money in his coffers with which to do so. And so the bank was a scheme that was developed for the purpose of allowing this uh, invasion of France to be financed. How did it work? Well, in a nutshell, the bank was given privileges that would in, uh, substantially enhance its lending power. And in return for those privileges, it was asked to subscribe the full amount of its paid-in capital to the government. And that money would go to finance the war. Later on, the bank's charter would be renewed, and in, in similar deals would be struck in exchange for the renewals. It was a fiscal innovation. But it had monetary consequences, and they were bad. Instead of being like a member of a chain gang, as is the case for any bank competing with co-equal rivals, a bank like the Bank of England with currency monopoly privileges is more like a pied piper of credit. What I mean by that is that there's a tendency for the privileged bank's currency not to be turned in regularly by non-privileged banks to, to, for collection in, in gold or silver, but to be treated itself as the proximate or immediate reserve asset of these other banks, because they can't issue their own currency they keep an inventory of the privileged bank's currency to supply their customers with. If we go back to that previous diagram then, in a monopoly system, if the central bank expands, the short run effect is to shift this line out. Even though there's no more gold and silver in the country, there are more of the IOUs of the central bank, and the central bank IOUs are treated by the other banks as an increase in their available reserves. Does that make sense? So the equilibrium of spending is disrupted by this Pied Piper of a central bank, which can by itself augment the specie holdings or the effect, sorry, the effective reserves of the whole system and lead all of the banks to expand when it expands, but force them to contract when it contracts. However, there was a short-run disciplining mechanism that's very important and made this a very unstable arrangement. That mechanism was described by David Hume, the famous Scottish philosopher. It's called the price-species flow mechanism, and it works like this. Suppose you have two countries both using some species standard, whether it's gold or silver, doesn't matter. And let's assume that, at first, their price levels that is, the prices of representative baskets of goods reckoned in terms of a common unit of specie are about the same in both countries. That has to be the long-run case, because we know if there's any big difference, if these are tradable goods, which we'll assume they are, that would trigger importing or exporting to bring the price levels back into line. Let's suppose they're in line at first, but at T0, our privileged bank starts lending generously. Maybe the government is hard up, there's a war, who knows. That causes the whole system now to expand, and that raises the English price level. 
at some point it passes the upper so-called gold point, and that means that it's sufficiently high now for it be, to be worthwhile for importers of goods to trade in their Bank of England notes for gold in order to use the gold to shop in France. And that means the Bank of England, which was spared from any gold losses in connection with its expansion as far as the internal discipline of the system was concerned, now suddenly faces what may be very large losses as it sees its gold drain externally to the rest of the world. And that's what happened again and again in the course of the 19th century. The Bank of England was on a loose leash, but it was still on a leash. It could lead the whole country in a wave of overexpansion, but then it could be suddenly yanked back into international equilibrium, which could generate a crisis for England as the bank curtailed credit and suddenly forced many other banks and industries to fail, hundreds, perhaps thousands. That was your typical English boom-bust crisis of the 19th century. And it was in response to repeated crises of, these, of this sort. Crises, were, by the way, that were not seen in Scotland at the time. That Walter Badgett, the second editor and most famous editor of The Economist, wrote a book called Lombard Street in 1873. Now, what most people will tell you about Lombard Street, especially people who like central banks, is, ah, that's the book where Badgett explained why every country should have a lender of last resort to save it from crises. That is, Badgett said every country should have a central bank. That's not what he said. What he said was this. He said, given that we've got this central bank in England, the Bank of England, we have this problem of an unstable system. And the way the bank's been acting often is that when the time of an external drain comes, a panic, instead of caring about everybody else, it's saving itself and wrecking the whole country in the process. It needs to act differently. It needs to lend freely when faced with an external drain at high rates of interest that will attract capital and thus specie abroad and stem the external drain. It needs to behave as what later people would call a lender of last resort. But Badgett very explicitly said that if there was no Bank of England, we wouldn't have to worry about all this. He wrote, I have tediously insisted that the natural system of banks is one where many banks keep their own cash reserve with a penalty of failure before them if they neglect it, a la chain gang. Yet I've shown, and I've shown that our system is that of a single bank keeping the whole reserve with no effective penalty of failure, yet I propose to maintain it. Why did he say that? Why did he propose not to get rid of the Bank of England? Because, he wrote, I'm quite sure it's of no manner of use proposing to alter it. You might as well or better try to alter the English monarchy and substitute a republic as to alter the present constitution of the English money market. It was, in his opinion, politically impossible. Now, I wonder what Badgett would think of the fact that his advice about how to kind of put a Band-Aid on the British, flawed British monetary system was taken as a recommendation for making all the world's monetary systems more or less equally flawed. Today, today, of course, the idea that you might get rid of the British monarchy is, doesn't seem so far out. But just try telling people that you should get rid of the Bank of England now and see what they say. Now, I've explained how central banks can destabilize what might otherwise be a naturally stable monetary system. <clears throat> but I don't wish to be misinterpreted. 
Central banks aren't the only devices that can wreck an otherwise good monetary system, and we know that from U.S. experience. Everyone knows that the Fed was created in 1913, or the Federal Reserve Act was passed in 1913, not because our government was anxious to get a source of revenue, as England's had been back in 1694, but because we'd had a series of pre-central banking crises, and this was an attempt to prevent further crises of that sort. But, but those crises weren't proof that we had a free, uh, that a free market monetary system can't work. If you look at the history of banking in the U.S., you'll see we never had a free market monetary system. Contrary to, to often stated myths, our system has been heavily regulated from the get-go in different ways at different times, of course, but what's common to all of those ways and all of those times is that the regulations caused trouble. They did not make things stable. They made things unstable that could have been stable if they hadn't been regulated so. Now, it was very hard to start a bank in the United States, especially before 1837. Many places outlawed bank and banking entirely, and uh, many had monopoly banks. This is a situation around 1836. This is a few, some years before, later, before the Civil War. I'll explain the red dots in a moment. As you can see, only the Northeast had anything like real competition in banking, and even there, there were very restrictive banking laws. Still, where do you think banking and currency were most sound? Where there were few banks or where there were many? By far and away, where there were many. More banks, more competition, better banking. The most stable of the pre-Civil War systems was the New England system, which was controlled by the Suffolk Bank of Boston. We didn't allow banks to branch for the most part, but the Suffolk Bank at least created a clearinghouse to collect notes from all the banks of New England and to expose them to the chain gang type discipline that I described before. It's hard to do that when banks don't have branches, but it's still possible as the Suffolk Bank proved. And it gave this New England both the first uniform currency of the country, where notes from any part of New England were the same value everywhere in New England, and the most stable. And if you were a New England bank and you overexpanded cre credit, in 11 days you were likely to find out that you made a big mistake. In 1837, some bank, uh, starting with Michigan and then New York, states started passing laws that they called free banking laws. And this has been a source of continued uh, <laughs> uh, uh, tr trouble for advocates of free banking like myself, these laws were called free banking laws, but they didn't really introduce freedom in banking. The legislatures wanted to give the laws a nice name to make them more appealing, and they had in mind, no doubt in doing so, the more genuinely free banking system of Scotland. But what they created was various banking systems, depending on the state in question, that none of which was truly free, and some of which were very badly unfree. The case of Michigan's own first free banking law, because Michigan would try again later, was illustrative of this. You know, the phrase wildcat banking actually comes from Michigan. It first was used there after this free banking law was passed to refer to the apparently fly-by-night fly by fraudulent banks that were encouraged by the law. The law was so badly constructed that it was repealed in two years. 
Now, what did the law say? Well, like all free banking laws, it didn't allow any of the banks to have branches. And that already made for debilitating uh, effects because a bank without branches can't diversify and that's a weak source of weakness. But also like all other so-called free banking laws, Michigan's laws uh, required that banks to issue notes secure the notes with specific collateral that had to be lodged with the state banking authority. In Michigan's case, this could incur, include bonds and mortgages on real estate within the state or bonds executed by resident freeholders of the state. Real estate bonds. Those bonds turned out to be junk. But the banks had no choice. The law required these or even worse state bonds to be purchased as a condition for the banks to do business. And most of the free banks and wildcat banks that failed were operating under these arrangements. In fact, studies of all the so-called free banking systems show that the main course of failures in all of them was the depreciation of bonds that the banks in the systems were forced by law to hold, which bonds would not have been held and were not held by banks that didn't have these restraints imposed on them, and those banks didn't fail as much. The evidence is very clear. Even so, by the eve of the Civil War, uh, state bank currency wasn't all that bad. You know, if you bought every state, state bank note in the country, by then the worst of the systems had been weeded out. If you bought every non-Confederate bank note in circulation in 1863, October 1863, and you were foolish enough to pay the full face value of the note, and then you brought the notes, all the notes, millions of dollars worth, either to Chicago or to, to New York, and sold them to what a private broker would pay you, how greater percentage loss do you think you would bear on the face value of the notes? Anyone want to take a guess by then? Earlier, it could have been 10, 20 percent, way earlier. 1863, what's that? 80%. No. Total loss from face value, less than 1 percent. So the myths about how bad things were, they weren't that bad by the Civil War. Nevertheless, the government intervenes during the Civil War. Why? Revenue. It passes the National Banking Acts designed to raise revenue for the Union government by creating a new set of banks that would have to buy guess which bonds in order to engage in a banking business and issue notes. Answer? Union bonds, of course. That was the whole idea. State banks did not convert in droves to the new national charters. That was disappointing, but they had a solution to that too. They taxed their notes out of business and practically destroyed the whole industry. And that was the end of state bank notes. Here you can see the provision right there. This note is secured by bonds <clears throat> of the United States deposited in the U.S. Treasurer with the U.S. Treasurer in Washington. That may have been a clever way to pay for the war, folks. Actually, it's not clear that it was, but never mind. The question is, what sort of currency system did it leave us with after the war? And the answer is, a really bad system. Why? Because the notes that were, the bonds that were eligible to back national bank notes became scarcer and scarcer after the war. As the government ran surpluses, yes, governments used to run surpluses, and this was one of those cases, retired much of its debt, as it got more costly to acquire the requisite bonds, the supply of national banknotes declined because it was too expensive to secure them. 
1880, there were $350 million worth of such notes in circulation. By 1890, there was less than half that amount. In a rapidly growing economy, this was not good. Also, because of the rules for issuing banknotes, it was prohibitively costly, particularly, to issue currency for seasonal needs, like the harvest that happened every fall when a lot of currency was needed to pay migrant workers, especially in areas that had no banks still. It was this lack of an elastic currency, as it was called at the time, that was behind the major crises of 1884, 1893, 1907, that ultimately gave rise to the Federal Reserve. But what we have to understand is that those crises were entirely due to legislative interference with banks' freedom to issue notes and also their freedom to branch, which made them very weak. Now, the Fed was supposed to give us an elastic currency, and it was created to do so after the, in, uh, particularly after the panic of 1907. Now, but here's a curious thing. Look at this other line. Let's take a closer look at that. That bottom line. Now, there's a currency supply that's behaving pretty well. It's got nice, jagged, seasonal spikes. It doesn't shrink over time. It's stable and eventually growing. They must have a central bank like the Fed. They must have a system that has people in charge regulating the supply and making sure everything works just peachy keen. Oh, no, wait a minute. That's the stock of Canadian banknotes. Canada didn't have a central bank either. They didn't establish a central bank until 1935. If you want to ask me why, I'll tell you. It's not because they needed one or that it was a good idea. Canada had a system modeled after the Scottish system. In fact, Scotsmen had established the Canadian banks. And they were free to issue notes with no collateral requirements and free to branch everywhere. Many regulators tried to pass laws before 1907 that would emulate the Canadian system, that is, modify ours to be more like that system. That would have solved the problem. But they were prevented from doing so by blocked by special interests and other forces, including uh, his, sorry, Canadian banknotes, competitive system, and all that. Very pretty. People knew at the time that Canada's system would have worked, tried to pass laws. This guy... William Jennings Bryan, he was against any kind of non-governmental currency. Of course, he also liked silver, but anything except private banknotes, he blocked any reform that would have allowed our commercial banks to issue currency more freely. And Wall Street, for its part, blocked reforms that would have allowed branch banking. Ironically, because in the countryside, the independent bankers blamed they said they didn't want branch banking because Wall Street would take advantage of it. Actually, they were on the same side. Wall Street got all the correspondent business that the lack of branch facilities made uh, sent their way. Uh, it was the Midwestern city banks, particularly in Chicago, that were behind branching, but they were outnumbered. Anyway, we got the Federal Reserve Act. It didn't work very well. The problem was that it gave... I'm going to stop very soon, I promise. It gave... It gave it, the, a central bank can issue more currency when it's needed, but it can also not do so. It was not an automatic, spontaneous system governed by competition and market forces. It could create too much or too little or the right amount. On paper, it could be perfect. In practice, it was, for the most part, very imperfect. We had a massive collapse of the banking system, as you all know, in the 30s, and everybody agrees these days that the Fed basically blew it then, even Ben Bernanke. Money supply collapsed 32% or more, depending on the measure. Here's the collapse of spending. 
right? One of these lines shows uh, the consumer price index. The other one shows real GDP. Put them together and you've got MV, right? A stable system would avoid that. Oh, Canada, this is how many banking failures they had in the 30s. Did the Federal Reserve at least help get us out of the crisis in the 30s? Not at all. There's Federal Reserve credit in the 30s. They ain't doing nothing. Now, money growth did help, but it was all coming from gold. First, there was the devaluation of gold, which increases its nominal supply. And then there's gold flowing in because Hitler takes power in Europe and everybody's got the jitters. That's what helps get us out. FDR's policies, unfortunately, interfered with the recovery, which would have been faster if they hadn't been in the way. Let's skip that. Here's Christina Romer, former head of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, the first of Obama's uh, councils, writing about how the Fed has performed after the Great Depression compared to before the Fed, before 1914. She writes, the average length of recessions is actually one month longer in the post-World War II era than in the pre-World War I era. There's also no obvious change in the distribution of the length of recessions between the pre-war and post-war eras. That's pretty damning because that's just treating the depression period or the interwar period as practice, right? Oh, that's just practice. Now we're getting serious. They still aren't doing as good a job as the lousy system they replaced. Oh, and that was written in 1999. What do you suppose the more recent evidence will do to that conclusion? Well, I want to stop now. There's a lot I could say about the subprime crisis, of course. But, um, but I want to also, I, I prefer to leave more time for questions. Uh, but I wanted to give you some idea that market forces can create a stable monetary and banking system and that instability is traceable, if you actually bother to look, uh, to government intervention in monetary systems. Okay, I'll stop there. I guess this gentleman's first. Uh, this is kind of new. Um, I keep reading. I've, I've not looked it up uh, yet. But what do you think of the Bitcoin? Kind of explain what it is and what you think the future of the Bitcoin is. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'm going to give you a real short answer to that because um, otherwise the, the only alternative is one that's way too long. Um, so Bitcoin is an interesting case. I call Bitcoin a synthetic commodity money. It resembles gold in that... There's only so much of it that can be mined, so to speak. It's predetermined. It's like the gold in the ground. And uh, no matter what anyone does, barring some very uh, uh, peculiar uh, possibilities, uh, the supply can never exceed 21 million coins. And it'll hit that amount. It'll taper off to that amount in another 20, 30 years. Um, so... But it's also like a fiat money in that it, 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 is, uh, uh, it is designed in the sense that it's, it's pre-designed. This number, 21 million, was somebody came up with that. It wasn't who, nature. Who, issue, who is issuing the Bitcoin? The, the coins are issued initially by the persons who mine them, like miners mining stuff. And mining is the, is the jargon used to refer to people using lots of computer power to solve essentially math problems. And those who solve the problems get coins as their reward. And that's how the program works. But the, the thing is set up so that no matter how much computer power is, is, is thrown at the problem, only a certain amount of 
coins get produced per period of time, depending on the preset schedule. And so what you're doing is competing to be the one who gets some of these coins. And then they're placed into, and then the, the miners can in turn spend the coins. And of course, most people who acquire bitcoins aren't miners because they, they trade for them. They've been produced already and they're already in the system. It's an interesting system. How long will it last? I don't know. I can only tell you that I'm amazed it got this far and I'm very intrigued by it. It's an, it's, it introduces to us, though, a whole class of potential such synthetic commodity monies. And here's what I like to say. So look, if you can design a Bitcoin, you could in principle design a similar product with an algorithm that's a lot more macroeconomically smart. So for example, suppose I had Janet Yellen here and I said, okay, Janet, you know, Janet and I are good pals. I said, Janet, tell me exactly how you think your bank, the Fed, should respond to all these different contingencies ideally. What would you like it to do? What's your macroeconomic target? And never mind what her theory is. She says, well, I think it should do, the price level should do this, the inflation rate should do that, the unemployment, whatever. You can build a Bitcoin does that automatically. So why do we need a central banker who might do it, but might not? Why not have the thing we can absolutely rely on that can't be tampered with to do the thing we want done? That's what I like about Bitcoin is it allows us to ask that question. Is that, okay, yes. Uh, Two quick questions. One is, uh, your, I think you made the analogy that a free banking system can be uh, akin to a, a chain gang and they kind of self-correct each other. Mm -hmm. um, but it seems just the analogy, if, if one person falls, the whole system falls. That's how, right. is, how is that? It's counterintuitive. That's number one. Number two, what's a plan to get out of what we are today into some kind of an orderly, more freer banking system, given where we are today? So, uh, let me ask you to repeat, what, what was the first question? You yeah. said, said counterintuitive? You said the, cha the chain gang was, if, if, to me, if one person falls in a chain, chain gang, then every, all the banks fall at the same time. Well, okay, the way, the way to think of the analogy isn't with the banks falling, but how far they can move. Okay? So we don't care whether they're standing, falling, sleeping. We, what we want to know is, can they move much and, and when? And the answer is that independently, no bank can move. It has to stay put so relative inflate. to the others. Yeah, okay. Now, what happens, though, is you have to think about uh, a somewhat more complicated and therefore less satisfactory analogy where all the chain gang members are actually sitting on this, this object that can itself move, like a, like a big platform on wheels. If more specie comes into the system, the whole platform can move, and they can move with it, of course. But if they try to expand their credit on the basis of an existing species stock, that is a platform that stays still, uh, any bank that tries to do this is going to be tripped over and limited. Okay. And that's, that's the discipline. Okay. And then how do we get from here to... Yes, well, uh, that's another <laughs> of those big questions. All your questions are tough ones for a couple minutes, but I'll try. Uh, uh, let's understand, first of all, uh, the most important response I can make to that is free banking does not itself solve the problem of the underlying base regime. In the old days, when you had a gold standard, having a free banking system meant that your ultimate course of your money supply, etc., was determined by the availability of gold in the economy, right? And the, what the free banking system did was to create a flexible structure on top of that gold base that could work very well with it and create an overall fairly stable system. And partly that's because gold itself was not all that badly uh, behaved compared to uh, fiat money. 
Now we have a fiat money system. So if we give the banks perfect freedom, we're still stuck with a US dollar that's arbitrarily manipulable. So a real reform has to involve banking reform. And I do believe that, that a free banking system today would work better than our present banking system. But you can't free little bits of it. You can't say to banks, for example, oh, lend wherever you want to at whatever rates. And by the way, we're still going to insure you 100%. <laughs> that won't work. Because insurance kind of mucks things up, you see? So you've got to deregulate comprehensively in order for deregulation to, to, to result in a stable system. But even once you did that, you'd, still all, you'd have to also reform the monetary base. You'd have to discipline the Fed. And I believe the best way to do that today is not to try to make the Fed, again, responsible for converting dollars into gold. Quite frankly, I think that would last about a day for good reason. We'd all attack that. We wouldn't trust it, right? Uh, we'd, we'd run on. Uh, if you're wise, if the Fed said to you to, tomorrow, you can now have so much gold for your dollars, if you didn't go and get your gold, you'd be like the Greeks who didn't bother to get their euros on time. <laughs> right? So everybody would run, and they'd say, see, this doesn't work. That'd be the end of that. But what you can do is put, put the uh, supply of dollars on a strict rule basis that would at least emulate what a Bitcoin-type algorithm would do. And you could even make it work with a Bitcoin mechanism adopted by the, go the government. Uh, and put, that is in a rule that would establish such a mechanism. Then we'd have a dollar that's itself disciplined with a free banking system built on top of it. And we'd have the government out in the sense of no active intervention con and control of money. And then we'd have a relatively stable system. So it's possible. It's all possible, but we have a big educational job to do before we can get people interested in moving in these directions. Yes, sir. I was just curious. I'm a little unclear on the, the example that you gave with the wheat and the highways <laughs> and how with the fractional reserve banking, you know, it's, it's sort of like eliminating the, the number of highways that, that, that uh, take up the space that could be used by the wheat. And it seems to be kind of an argument about the, the resource cost That's right. of the you know, the gold coins, of the, but isn't, isn't the resource cost of the actual, you know, whatever incentives we give to gold mining, uh, you know, pretty small in the grand scheme of things? No, not at all. If you really had to rely entirely on gold without any fractional reserve banking, you would be talking about several percentage points worth of GDP sacrificed every year. Milton Friedman did a notorious calculation back in the 50s where he came up with this number, but what he, which was correct as far as it goes to describe what would happen in a 100% gold standard. But he unfortunately represented that as the cost of a gold standard, as if he didn't recognize that in the real world, gold standards you relied on fractional reserve banking to considerably reduce the amount of actual gold needed to operate the exchange mechanism. And in fact, if you take fractional reserve banking into account, it's easy to show that it's cheaper than a fiat monetary system. Because in, under a fiat system, the demand for gold in practice tends to be much greater than it is in a gold standard system with fractional reserves. Uh, if you're a gold miner, which, which world would you rather live in? The world of today or the world of 1875? Well, the, your, your answer should depend. I mean, there are other considerations, of course, but on the, on the relative price of gold. Because that's going to determine how profitable your business is. The relative price of gold has been much higher in recent decades since the closing of the Fed's gold window than it ever was before. Well, except on rare occasions. Yeah. Yes? 
So I was wondering if you could kind of walk us through uh, the situation in which you do have com- multiple competing banks, and one of the banks starts issuing more uh, than they necessarily have reserves for, mm-hmm. um, and they go through the clearinghouse and they just don't have the money for that. What kind of systems in place are, are going to occur at that point in time? Normally, normally a bank, the minute it doesn't, it, the minute it fails to settle, is is by, is by common law, it's closed. It's, it's in default. And that's it. It's out of business. Now, there can be some special ways of, of dealing with that. But generally speaking, for a bank, the nature of the bank liability contracts is such that, unlike some other debt contracts, uh, uh, it, there's a presumption that the minute it's not paid, you're in default. And that's, and that's that. And, it, and therefore, you've got to close down. Any losses you incur beyond that your shareholders are on the hook for them. And, and this is a crucial difference between a commercial bank and a central bank that's often surprisingly neglected. When a commercial bank has an obligation to pay its I- IOUs on demand, that obligation is meaningful in the sense that if it doesn't pay, the shareholders lose something. If a central bank makes the same promise and then breaks it, nothing happens. It has sovereign immunity. Because what happened is central banks, by virtue of their monopolies of currency, came to be treated as having being extensions of the sovereign right of money production and therefore being essentially sovereign entities. You can't sue them and they don't lose anything if they break their promises. That's why central banks are so incapable of maintaining any sort of fixed exchange rate arrangement for very long. That's why a central bank-based gold standard will never last especially after all the experience we've had with them violating such uh, arrangements. So if you're going to have a gold standard based, a, a, a banking based on a gold standard, the, the banks that are keeping that promise have to be commercial competitive banks with no connection to government. You'd have to create that sort of gold standard. That's the kind that can really last. Did I answer the question? Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, yes, I was wondering if you could... Uh, explain how free banking and the free market of banking will operate or has operated in international trade within the global market, like once you extend beyond the borders? That's a good question. It's a very interesting question. Uh, Of course, we've never had an international free banking system. We've hardly had genuine free banking in any anywhere. We've had approximations in Canada and Scotland and a few other places. But in principle, in principle, if, if we really are going for the best conceivable monetary system, what would it look like? I would, I would argue it would look like uh, a free banking system that covers the world. Banks have branches everywhere in different countries. They settle with each other through clearinghouses. Um, and uh, uh, now it could be that there's more than one so-called optimal currency area. So it might not be the case that you have a one unit of uh, standard of value that prevails worldwide. But you certainly would have uh, uh, currency areas that in many cases would encompass numerous countries. Canada and the United States were essentially a single currency area, but they didn't have a common free banking system. In a world where governments really stay out of the way, you'd have had the same Canadian banks doing business in the U.S. and good U.S. banks doing the same in Canada, and there would all be one big currency uh, area and one big free banking system. That's how it would work. 
and you would not notice, essentially, the biggest change would be that you wouldn't talk about international versus domestic this, that, and the other thing. Those are artificial distinctions that exist because of government boundaries, legislative boundaries that create them. No one talks about the balance of payments between you know, uh, Virginia and New York and that sort of thing. Well, they, you can, you can talk about it, but it's not that big a deal, right? It's, nobody worries about it. Nobody says, oh my God, there's a deficit here, there's a surplus there. So the, the, what, what international boundaries do in economics is they create these artificial distinctions and problems that go, that go with them that otherwise would be kind of innocuous things that we wouldn't even, nobody would pay any attention to or try to regulate. Uh, what if if the United States became, adopted the free banking system, but the rest of the world didn't, how would our system cooperate with the rest of the world in international trade? Uh, be, uh, there would be a foreign exchange rate, of course, between the U.S. currency, as there is now. In fact, it wouldn't change things much at all because, as I said, free banking itself is just a banking regime. You'd be changing our banking laws. You wouldn't be changing our underlying currency unit just by having free banking. Now, you could change the underlying currency unit, and you could do something with it that would change the way its uh, settlements happen between the, U, uh, uh, what the, the nature of international settlements, depending on what you do to that unit. But free banking alone won't change anything in, in, in that regard. Yes, sir. Not exactly about uh, free banking, but I, I wondered if you might care to comment, because I'm scared to death. I want you to make me feel a little better. You're going to make me make a prediction? <laughs> well... You know, I don't think we've ever been in this place before. We're six years now, going on seven years of zero interest rates, globally a race to the bottom, and whose country is worth less, an enormous combination of debt, both sovereignly and, and even uh, in, in other areas. This has got to at some point manifest itself in some kind of change or event. And I just wondered if you might want to comment on that. I don't mean to put you on the spot. But no, I'm no. I, I'm, actually, I'm actually willing to make a very definite prediction. There will be change in an event. <laughs> but, I, but beyond that, I, have, I can know as much as you do. I mean, uh, we, 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 uh, much depends on how the Federal Reserve responds or will respond to a really robust recovery, should we be lucky enough to ever see that, um, whether they can make their exit strategies actually work in a way that will prevent uh, inflation from breaking out without bringing us right back into the hole we've been in. That is a good question right there. I believe that the Fed is in a corner. I believe that it'll ultimately either have to allow some inflation or put brakes on growth, or a little bit of both. And get ready, they're, they're already now working to create the new new zero. As you all know, 2% is the new zero. The new new zero will be four or six. And the con- No, I think predicting cataclysmic uh, equa- inflation is a good business, but bad economics. We'll leave that at that. All right, so I'm Dan Gold, so my last name makes this question kind of applicable. Um, so what type of benefits do we enjoy as having the world reserve currency, and what can we do to keep that? 
The benefit uh, consists of a greater demand for US dollars abroad, a very great demand, uh, which is not, let's face it, limited to the a demand for US dollar reserves, but also the demand, unofficial demand for US dollars in many other, in many countries by their citizens. Uh, now, oh, exactly why is this beneficial? The immediate benefits it creates consist of the flow of interest earnings that are attached to all that, those dollars, which shows up in the Fed's income statements, right? The earnings on its balance sheet, which is bigger in real terms by virtue of this demand than it would be otherwise. Which earnings are mostly sent to the Treasury, as most people know, uh, and so constitute part of uh, the, uh, the government's revenues. Uh, 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 the rest is kept by the Fed, supposedly to cover its expenses, but of course the Fed is rather generous to itself. So uh, uh, that's where, that's what that is doing. Now, um, from the point of view of macroeconomics, of course, other things equal. The greater the demand for a currency, international or otherwise, the lower the price level that's associated with any given supply. So you can say that by virtue of the international reserve status of the dollar, its value is higher than it would be otherwise, or prices are lower than they would be otherwise. If that demand should disappear, prices will go up that much more than they would have, uh, or the inflation rate, however you choose to look at it. And that, of course, uh, will be unfortunate. But it's going to take an. But the, the basic answer to the question whether the dollar, how that the dollar has to do to keep its status is, it only has to be better than the alternatives that are in the running. And what are those alternatives? Well, people used to think the alternatives were the Chinese yuan and the euro. And it's. It's because that is, in fact, or was the case, that the dollar is still very much in the saddle because the alternatives are in worse shape. The Swiss franc is a better currency by most measures, but not sufficiently widely used to be a real contender in that contest. So there you go. We're the least evil of evils, and that's what it takes. You're welcome. Guess we're done.